The Big Chief with a badge, a cattle prod and a head on a stick. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's a funny old world, isn't it, out there in the land of Brexit? It seems the Prime Minister's chief negotiator in Europe let slip in a bar last night that no deal is officially off the table, while at the same time threatening that the whole process could be delayed for years if a deal cannot be agreed. Then we have the rather ludicrous spectacle of the head of MI6 claiming that he needs to stay on beyond Brexit to make sure everything runs smoothly. Call me old-fashioned, but I thought MI6 was supposed to be a secretive, shadowy-type organisation... How do we even know who's in charge of it? And why is he telling everyone what he's going to do? His name is C, by the way. Uh, We'll be giving you his full name and address later on. Most importantly this morning, uh, on the Brexit front, though, the worm has officially turned. Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, who has switched sides and is now backing leave. Uh, After dozens of speeches warning about the dangers of leaving the European Union, of all sorts of economic carnage, of depression-type stuff coming through, long worse than the 1930s, uh, being chief cheerleader in charge of Remain, Carney has now decided that Brexit could usher in, in his words, a golden age of international cooperation and cross-border commerce. I can't wait to hear all the Remain fanatics quoting him ad nauseam. 0344 499 1000. Coming up a little bit later on, I'll be asking just why George Clooney is such an idiot. Uh, I'll also be asking why prisoners are deliberately re-offending just to get a roof over their heads, and why so many people actually believe the sell-by dates on the food that they buy. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Oh, my old man's a dustman, he wears a dustman's hat. He wears gold blimey trousers and he lives in the council flat. He looks a proper nana in his great big gobnail boots. He's got such a job to pull them up, but he calls them daisy roots. <laughs> Now, as much as you may think uh, that Brexit is the overarching reason why we do talk radio and why we have phone-in programmes, it's not. There was a time before Brexit when we used to talk about all sorts of things. And one of the things I used to talk about an awful lot, regardless of whether I was in Edinburgh, regardless of whether I was in London, no matter where I was in the world, was rubbish, Okay. Now, there are those of you who will think that, of course, I talk rubbish because that's what I talk all the time. But that would be unfair and unkind. What I'm saying is, is that everyone has a story about rubbish. Everyone has a story about garbage. Everybody's unhappy, generally speaking, with the way that their rubbish is taken away. We throw away an awful lot of stuff in this world in which we live. And unfortunately, it's a very, very difficult job to take it all away. Uh, There's now a story saying that almost 5,000 complaints were made about missed bin collections received by councils every single day last year. So we're in a problem here. We have got a sort of crisis, a crisis of rubbish. Let's talk to Councillor Peter Fleming, uh, who's chair of the LGA's Improvement and Innovations Board. That's the local government association. Uh, Peter, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. I was just thinking we should re-record that song, My Old Man's A Waste Operative. Uh, (laughs) Well, indeed, or in fact, not even my old man, but somebody who is very close to me and could be related in my family. Because you don't want to make it that it's just a job for men, obviously. Now, we've got a problem here, haven't we? Because there's there's so much rubbish in the world, so much rubbish in this country. You know, where are you going to put it all and who's going to take it all away? 
Well, absolutely. I mean, obviously, the the headline of the report is, is you know, one one million missed collections. But yeah. actually, you know, that's out of eight hundred and twenty one million waste collections yeah. from households every year, and that doesn't include recycling collections. Yeah, right. So, you know, actually, yes, we've seen an increase, but actually, there's just more rubbish out there. Well, there is. And I mean, the problem is, for you guys, it can't be getting any cheaper because nothing's getting any cheaper. Um, and it's getting more segmented and people are, uh, are, are probably getting better educated about what to do with their rubbish. But, you know, there's always going to be a problem, isn't there? Well, look, the government only only about a week, maybe two weeks ago, came out with their new waste strategy, which would actually mean that councils would have to be spending way more money collecting rubbish because we'd have to be collecting, you know, batteries separately, you know, uh, cans separately, glass, you know, loads of stuff separately, which would add huge amounts of cost to, you know, what is already for a lot of councils one of their most costly services they provide to the whole public. And yeah. it is that universal service. Everybody benefits from uh, rubbish and recycling collection. I mean, if you were to ask most people in this country, what do you want your local council to do? They would probably put bin collection up as number Absolutely. one or two, because that's what they—that's what they think of, it, of of you guys doing. And Absolutely. and we know that you—we know that you do a lot more than that. But when you get when you see councils changing over from a say a weekly collection to a fortnightly collection, there's a couple of councils uh, in this report who apparently have gone to a monthly collection. I mean, that's just not good enough, particularly in the summer. Well, look, I mean, pe- people, um, you're absolutely right. You're, it's the most visible service yeah. that councils provide. And actually, it's one of the few absolutely universal services councils provide as well. So something that everybody sees, everybody uh, uses. So, uh, But the reality is that actually eight out of ten people are happy about their waste collection services. And when you look at the number of complaints about miscollections, when you look at the totality of all the collections we make, it's a tiny fraction. Um, so, you know, uh, you know, councils take it incredibly seriously. Rubbish collection is, you know, that most visible service. And all councils, I don't know, a council uh, uh, in, in the country that doesn't take waste collection uh, seriously. So, you know, we are focused on it, but it's in that, you know, that whole world. And, and I'm sure you've covered this as well, Mike. By, by next year... We'll, councils will have lost 60p in every pound of their funding. And, you know, that is going to have an impact on the services we provide uh, to residents. I mean, most of the councils that I'm aware of, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, have, have outsourced their bin collecting anyway, haven't they? Not, certainly uh, in all of the places I see uh, around London and, and even in Sussex, where I, where I also live, um, they're all different companies. They're not the actual local council doing the collecting. Well, look. I mean, I could I could bore you about uh, the Don't 1980s and and compulsory competitive tendering, <laughs> but I but I but I won't bore you. I mean, my own authority, which is Seven Oaks District Council, we still have it in house. We still collect rubbish and recycling every week. You know, uh, because it is that most visible right. uh, of services. Other councils, you know, they've they've um, they've outsourced to to companies, but they work with those companies to make sure you know that they're providing the best quality service that they can. But also, you know, keeping an eye on those costs to the hardworking council taxpayer. It's becoming increasingly difficult, though, as we're seeing uh, government funding for local services massively reduce over the last 10 years. Huge reduction. Sure. But how is it possible, say, for you guys in Sevenoaks to maintain the service and keep it in-house, which is obviously better, in my view, because you've got better control over it, uh, and, and other people can't do that? 
Well, look, I think there's there's some history there going all the way back to the 80s. So the in-house team before my time won that compulsory competitive tendering um, uh, tender. And, and obviously from that point on, it was in-house. Obviously, once you go outsource, once you outsource, um, you've got a, if you want to bring it back in, there are huge costs of you know buying the vehicles, you know bringing those people, uh, the staff back into the into the council, and you know it's a local choice. You know they they've made a choice around you know how they want to provide services, and uh, and some of it is is finance driven, some of it is because actually those those um, companies can do things that you know the the council in that particular situation don't believe that they can do, uh, and there might be some economies of scale, or you know then neighbouring councils can work together. Um, it's about local choice. I mean, the, the key word when it comes to local government is, is local. It should be about, you know, that local decision making and, and local services for local people. Um, and, and, you know, this idea that we should have some sort of nationalised waste collection and recycling, you know, thing, just not going to work. The only people that have got two homes and have to worry about two different collection things are blinking MPs. And well, I mean, you might say that, but that would be entirely incorrect. And I'm not going to tar them all with the same brush. But what about this, Peter? What's the future? Because in the end, we'll be producing more rubbish. You'll be probably asking us to separate it out even more than we already do. But you're going to have to put it somewhere. You're going to have to find a new way of getting rid of it, aren't you? Well, absolutely. And, and again, you know, we, we, we have to we have to have those conversations with the public as well. I mean, clearly, there's been a massive push to reduce uh, landfill and, you know, lots and lots of reports about that. There's huge amounts of cost uh, involved in, in putting rubbish in the ground. And actually, I don't think anybody truly believes that that is the way that we, we, we should go. Um, but, you know, in some cases, that's the only uh, that's the only option at the moment. Um, we have um, the, the ability to turn waste to uh, energy. But actually, what we need to do as a society, and this is not just down to local local councils, but, you know, down to manufacturers, all of us, is to be producing less rubbish. Mm. If we can reduce the amount of packaging, if we can reduce the amount of stuff, then actually we, we save ourselves money through council tax and the amount of money councils have to pay on collecting and, and dealing with that rubbish. But actually, we're also helping the environment as well. So I think there's a big push to reduce the amount of stuff that we're actually putting out in our bins or our, our bags every week. And uh, what about this question, finally, from Scott, who's tweeted in. He says, can you please ask Peter uh, if they actually do keep bins separate? As my missus is paranoid about it, I get told off every day for putting things in the wrong bins. I think that's more of an issue with his marriage than it is about the bins, to be fair. But um, do you actually, because I've seen bottle banks, right, which have got brown, clear and green entrances, right, picked up by a massive sort of, you know, skip truck and all dumped into the same place. So I don't know why they bothered separating them in the first place. Yeah. Okay. So, so I mean, glass is a real. In- I mean, it's an interesting case study, but basically, the recycling uh, recycling is a marketplace, and that marketplace, there are peaks and troughs. Sometimes those people that take the glass. Yep. Peter's disappeared. So if we really have a value. Any of them have a value. So actually, you know, what we're trying to do is we're trying to to keep the public going with recycling whilst also maintaining a relationship with the marketplace which is where the recycling goes uh, afterwards and if there is no marketplace uh, for a recycler at a particular time then actually that makes it even harder for councils uh, to deal with to deal with waste 
Okay, Peter, thank you very much indeed. Councillor Peter Fleming there from Seven Oaks, uh, Chair of the LGA's Improvement and Innovations Board. Got a great tweet here, though, from Luke, who says, Here you go, Mike. I live in Blano Gwent, highest council tax in Wales, spent millions on a recycling trolley scheme. Then the council comes out and says the recycling percentage is too low. Three-week black bag collections with a maximum of four black bags only. Absolutely shocking. Uh, and he's got the Blano Gwent average band D council tax running at 1,827 quid. That's extraordinary. Absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? It really is. It's so unfair in all different parts of the country and it works differently in different parts of the country. Surely they need to get a grip of it. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the farmer of fury. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. 0344 is the number. We're going to go to the phones very, very shortly. Prime Minister's questions is going on. Uh, the guy from the SNP uh, is now standing up and trying to get some reassurances. There's no way he bothers, really. Nobody pays much attention to him uh, at the best of times. And certainly got nothing to say about Brexit. But uh, apparently the SNP are going to be putting in uh, some form of an amendment tomorrow uh, in which they're going to try and challenge the whole idea of Brexit and try and get it all called off. Well, that's not going to happen either, I'm sorry to say. 0344-499-1000. Craig uh, is in Oxford. Hi, Craig. Afternoon, Mike. Afternoon. What do you want to tell us? Uh, well, I was going to talk about video games, but just first I thought I'd throw in that, that when we go shopping, we buy between 14 and uh, 12 and 16 pints of milk at a time. Really? And it never goes off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you must drink a lot of milk, is all I can say. Yeah, but um, in terms of video games, um, I'd argue that actually I think they're beneficial, even violent ones. Um, any video game or any computer game is brilliant at um, dexterity and, you know, reflexes mm. and brain, brain drains. So it keeps you quite alert and quite reactive. You well, know, not if you stay up all night doing, doing it and you don't sleep. No, no. Obviously, if you take things to extreme, nothing's good for you. Right. But, but in, you know, a certain amount, you know, 
you know, hour a day, hour every other day, something like that is fine. Right. And actually, um, a lot of teenagers with pent up angst and anger, um, you know, venting a little bit of violence on the video game where mm. it doesn't hurt anyone mm. probably isn't the worst thing at all. It's probably a bit of therapy. Yeah, maybe. You know, so I mean, I suppose the point is, Craig, like many of these things, other you know, certain people are affected differently than other people. You know, I mean, exactly. some people can get behind the wheel of a car and drive in a sensible manner. Other people can learn how to drive in a sensible manner and suddenly turn into maniacs as soon as they get on uh, out on the road on their own. It, it, exactly. You know, 10 years ago, it was rap music that was the cause of all violence and anger in, in you know, teenagers. Yeah. That was video games. Um, it's been movies. I'm sure it'll be social media next that gets the blame for it. I mean, I took my kids to a place uh, in uh, Surrey the other week, uh, the other weekend for a for a, a sort of driving lesson, effectively off road. You know, um, yeah. and because they played these driving games, video games, they actually were pretty good at it already. You know, and the exactly. guy, the guy who was the teacher, said to them, "Have you ever driven anything?" And and I said, "Well, not really. I've driven a couple of go karts and stuff." But he said, "Have you ever driven any driving video games?" And they said, "Yeah." And he said, "Well, that will help you." You know, and, and they kind of knew intrinsically what to do. I believe I'm right. I, think, I remember seeing somewhere that um, I think it's over in Japan. A lot of the, the surgeons that do the robotic surgery mm. play video games yeah. and do things like that as, as practice. As I think it's got its role, and you know, but people are just so quick to blame stuff. It's, right. You know, it was just well, I mean, the, I think the, the RAF have said in the past that they quite like kids who are good at video games because they can train them to be pilots because they've got the same kinds of skills. Exactly. You think about lots of different things at once. You've got to press loads of different controls and buttons and sequences. It's, it's brilliant for the modern world. Yeah, it'll so come as no surprise maybe. to you that I'm hopeless at them, of course. I mean, I've only, I've only ever... I've, I've pretty much stopped playing at Space Invaders. That was, that was what I was good at. Well, there's never time for... There's always time for reform, <laughs> isn't there? So. Well, no, I'm never playing my kids at anything. They would beat me, and then I would be, uh, you know, inconsolable. Craig, thanks very much indeed. Let's talk to Mark, uh, who's in High Wycombe. Hello, Mark. Good afternoon, Mike. Good How are afternoon. You? Very well, sir. What would you like to say? Just listening to your show, Michael, it's a great show. Um, you know, the, the, the more news outlets that I listen to, programmes like yours, is it just me or is the Remain argument losing its way? I think it totally is. I think they're grasping at straws ma you know, massively now. I, you know, it just comes across more and more, Mike. And, you know, those of us, and I hold my hands up, I voted for Brexit and, you know, I've taken quite a barracking off of certain quarters for doing so. I right. still believe that what I voted for is a good way forward for this, this country. Um, but you're branded almost like a nationalist. Yeah. Aren't those who want to remain in the EU protectionists? Well, there's a bit of snobbery going on here as well, I think, Mark. And people like to think of themselves as Remainers as kind of slightly more intellectually superior. I don't know why Correct. they think that, but I don't know why they think that. Well, people like me apparently were sick and we didn't mm. know what we were voting for. Right. But you see but these the people trotting, be... they, they trot out these statistics like, well, most university-educated people voted to remain. Well, so what? It means nothing to me. Well, the other thing is as well, Mike, I mean, you know, I've been around, I'm, I'm nearly 50 years of age. Mm. For as long as I can remember, people have always been moaning about the economy, right. the NHS, this. What was so great about the status quo before even the idea of a referendum a few years ago? Yeah, exactly. Well, I say this to people all the time, Mark. I don't remember anybody ever coming up to me uh, when I was walking the streets or when I was doing radio shows, ringing up to say, by the way, isn't it great that we're in the European Union? Nobody ever said that. Yeah, and now that we're trying to do something to, to better the prospects of this country, suddenly that's wrong. Yeah, I know. It, it's bonkers. And do you find your friends are kind of shunning you now or your members of your family are shunning you now? 
well, I think maybe shunning's a little bit strong, but I mean, certainly, you know, there's been disagreements. Mm. Um, and, and I think people are actually scared of treading into a different direction because it's almost like better the devil you know. Yeah. I yeah. Want, yeah, it's a very odd psychology that has kind of taken over the, those people who lost the referendum. They they don't seem capable of accepting the fact that they've lost it. I don't You're understand. So right. You know? You're so right. It's, it's almost like, you know, the, the result, I don't think it'll ever be accepted in some quarters. And I think that'll be very a sad day for our, for our country if, if the people who lost the referendum cannot accept it and when we do leave, they don't just shut up because that's what they should do. Well, the other thing is, uh, Mike, you know, I mean, I, I was much younger in, I guess, what was it, 1975 when this country went into the... Yeah, well, 73 was the, was the vote, yeah. Yeah, but, I mean, did we sign up to all of what we're doing no. now back then? of course not. Absolutely so, so what, not. What, what, how did we get dragged into it? Well, or? I mean, there was a thing called the Lisbon Treaty, which, uh, funnily enough, came up this week because we saw Jeremy Corbyn at the time making a speech saying how awful the European Union was and how we had to get out of it and how we had to beat it. You know, now he's kind of doing his best to make out that, uh, you know, he wants to stay in it, but he'll, he'll go along with, with leaving it because that's what the people voted for. So, yes, I mean... The, the Lisbon Treaty kind of enacted a lot of the stuff that we're now bought into, but we never bought into places like Croatia and Romania and Bulgaria and the Czech Republic becoming part of the European Union at all. Mike, you know what? One of the best ideas I've heard lately, and mm. there's been so much madness talked about, if people want another referendum, what about after we've left, yeah. give it two or five years, yeah. and then, then ask the people, sure. do you want to stay outside? Yes, or That's do you want to rejoin fine. the European Union? As I say to these Romania MPs, you can't just have another referendum before you've enacted the first one. You've got to enact the first one. Then, after a period of time, like you suggest, have another one if you want. Absolutely. Makes perfect sense, Mark. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, let's talk to Richard quickly. Richard's in Lee. Hello, Richard. Hello, Mike. How yeah, are you? hi. Very well indeed. What do you want to say? Yeah, I was listening to you guys from Seven Oaks Council, you know, talk about the bin collections oh, yeah. and, and all that sort of thing. And um, it just makes my blood boil a bit, because if you talk about my own council, which mm. is Wigan Council, I mean, Seven Oaks will have to speak for itself, but um, last year they, they, they did all the bin collection changes and they, they saved something like £2 million mm. in doing the process, and you think, yeah, saved £2 million, that's good. But in the, uh, in the same year, they managed to hoard £35 million of taxpayers' money without spending it on anything. They really? just added it to the usable reserves mm. now um that uh, that actually increased the reserve they already had 148 million pounds in the uh, in the bank and they're always moaning um, they haven't got any money aren't they well the that, that that's what makes me angry it's all it's all our money whether it comes from government or the right. council or whatever um but they're they're saying that the government isn't giving them enough money and all that and i'm thinking well could you just sort of raise your own bank account first before you start asking us for more money um, because now, I mean, Wigan Council and other councils are the same. They've got now usable reserves of, mm. of £177 million whilst they're closing libraries and cutting out bin collections right. and all the rest of it. Now, I'm, I'm all for a, you know, a rainy day fund. You know, everybody needs to have a bit put by. And you know, if you talk about a council, yeah, that'll be a, a few million pounds. But £177 million whilst we're not getting our bins collected, that's not rainy day. That's, that's a virtual everyday monsoon yes. fund. Yes, well, um, it is. When, when you cut when you're cutting bin collections and when when you're doing all these things and cutting services and what have you, you know to, to me that's raining. You know, so so what does it have to do? 
to actually raise some of your some of the reserves that you've already got. You know, you've already taken the, this money off the people. No, it's a very good uh, point. It's a very so good point, I, Richard. I'll tell you what, next time we get some councillor on, I'll ask him why they do that. Thank you very much indeed uh, for that information. Richard in Lee there saying that the problem here is that the councils are stockpiling money. That's what they're doing. And it's our money and they shouldn't be doing it. Let's talk now, though, to somebody who is an expert. Uh, she is, of course, Dr. Linda Papadopoulos, uh, psychologist and host of the Psychology uh, Behind Pod. Now, she may not be an expert on Brexit, uh, but she's certainly an expert uh, on life. Dr. Linda, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. So it says here in front of me uh, that basically you are at your happiest age 16 and 70, which I can fundamentally disagree with. <laughs> are you feeling happy? I'm very happy. Good for you. And good. I'm neither of those ages, I'm happy to say. Uh, I think there's always really interesting stuff that comes out with kind of age-related happiness. And I think what, what tends to happen is is there, there's this sort of lull during middle age, right? So around when you're in your kind of 40s and 50s. Right. And I think that's for, for a lot of reasons, right? I think at that time in life, you're, you're kind of this sandwich between sort of caring for children that are reaching adulthood and then... Yeah caring for, for parents that are older. I think there's a lot of uh, people kind of get down at that time because there's a lot of taking stock of life, right? So it's not like when you are sort of in your teens and the whole world's ahead of you, it's a time of thinking, okay, where have I come? Where do I have to go? What do I have to look forward to? But interestingly enough, as people get older, we do in fact see that things settle down. and. Yeah. That happiness speaks, and I think a lot of that is perspective. A lot of the social status, the the materialism that you you kind of buy into as an adult. That you know, did, did I you know manage to get the right title, the right postcode, the right whatever it is that you know you feel. I think you see you see through the emperor's clothes as you get older, um, or hopefully you do, which is why we kind of see again this sort of rise in in sort of the the autumn years of life, shall we say? No, quite. I mean, we're always hearing at the moment how unhappy teenagers are so how do they come up with this figure of 16 being a happy age because supposedly teenagers now are, are terribly confused they're terribly mixed up uh, yeah. they, they don't know what to do they don't know where to go they can't get a job they don't know what what house to buy they haven't got any money you know i mean how do they work this out I have no idea. I haven't seen how the, the they came up. I don't know if it was like a, a self-report questionnaire. I don't know if it was around a, a specific area. What I do know, again, if it is about kind of hopefulness about the future, if that's what they were asking about, oftentimes that does, that is higher around sort of the, the teen years just because... Right prospects i'm sure if they'd been asking about stress they would have gotten a very different answer well from they're the asking MP. apparently they say here that the, the the survey was carried out by the office of national statistics respondents rated their life satisfaction self-worth happiness and anxiety from one to ten so you know maybe they're just more happy than everybody else is really miserable <laughs> well there you go maybe it's about a comparative thing Look, i i think again there is something about um, in, this, in this new day and age, I think sometimes happiness being relative to others, and we speak a lot about social media for young people and, and kind of in comparison to others' lives, never feeling they're as good as. So I wonder, again, in the way that the questions were asked weren't in comparison to others, what, there was something around satisfaction in the here and now, which maybe, you know, is, is what's happening there. Yeah, I mean, I often wonder when people talk about their happiness sort of uh, levels in life, that they're just not prepared for the different stages of life because yeah you can say that in your 30s and 40s when you're having younger children and the children are growing up it's quite stressful you know managing everything but it's part of what you choose to do surely I mean if you didn't want to have kids you shouldn't have had them well absolutely I, I my pet peeve is that we kind of speak about happiness as this state that you reach and you're like okay I'm there now and yeah 
not as captured in a moment. And and actually, in the in the same way, I think we shouldn't kind of aspire to like happiness, you know, being something we feel twenty four seven. I think right. we should also kind of you know embrace problems. You know, I always say to the people I work with, I say this to to my daughter that it's you know it's it's like a, a I don't know a Rubik's cube or a puzzle life. You know, you solve one problem and you move on to the next, and you approach it in that problem solving way, and then in between you do have those wonderful parties or sunsets or or lunches with you know great friends yeah. or you know winning games and and you savor those but the idea that we have to be happy all the time or that life should be an unending array of happiness i think is kind of a really a pressurizing frankly toxic idea you know it, it's captured in a moment like perfection yeah and i wonder whether if we are to believe the stories about sort of anxiety that teenagers face it's because they're under pressure to be happy you know now this is not going to help it is it because they're going to be reading this study and going blimey oh i'm 16 it's supposed to be about as happy as i ever get till I'm 70 yeah. to be happy again. Yeah, no, I think, you know, uh, th- there really is something about the way we speak about happiness. I couldn't agree with more. And the way that we speak about difficulties, right? You know, the, the words, the language that we use, whether we see ourselves as being victim to these things or as being control of these things, right. be they difficulties or, you know, positivity, I think is central. And maybe that's what we need to be looking at more rather than just these platitudes about, you know, being happy or not. No, indeed. And, and here's another one for you right apparently being a member of the clergy gives the greatest contentment so if you're feeling a little bit down in the dumps <laughs> just go and join some kind of religious organization and become ordained there you go just say you know what this is the way things are meant to be i need <laughs> them i'm not sure about that but there you go although we did i think we did a story last week about this that people who have a religious belief tend to be happier in their sort of day-to-day lives partly yeah, i assume yeah, well i'm not surprised again right so it's this idea of meaning right so yeah evolutionary perspective right since we evolved the ability to foresee our our doom right mm. it's, it's a scary thing that this is going to end so our lives you know these people that argue that we need meaning and it's interesting in a more secular society you see people becoming much more um prone to believing in luck right so you know uh, symbols like you know certain numbers or certain things become very very big they become much more superstitious it's as if we need to believe there's something bigger out there and if that is the case then of course having a religion would, you know, would satisfy that. Indeed. And bizarrely, the fourth most contented um, uh, profession, believe it or not, uh, comes in as politicians. Now, they don't look very happy to me. Uh, certainly not these days. Um, yeah, well, there well, there you go. I guess I, I wonder if there's something around, again, like I, on a more serious note, when you look at things, you know, like happiness, status is a very big one, right? So not necessarily in terms of am I genuinely happy, but this idea of feeling in control, feeling satisfaction. And I think it, the way that our politics are structured, that is that kind of, it denotes that status. So I wonder if that's part of it. Yeah, I wonder if it is. So, I mean, uh, do we have to wait, I mean, till we're 70 then to feel that this a sense of <laughs> thrilling, no, you know, happiness and contentment? No, I think, do you know what? I think you can train yourself to, to feel better. I think, number one, look for things every day. You know, happiness doesn't fall into your lap, so seek it out. Don't forget our brains, again, from an evolutionary point of view, we're, we're much more prone to seek out stuff that stresses us because that's how we protect ourselves, right? That's how we survived. We looked out for the berry that was going to poison us or for the, the you know, the, the wild animal that was going to hurt us. So when you walk around, you're going to be thinking about your problems today. Instead of doing that, look out for things that make you happy. It can be something small, you know? I, I caught the train. I didn't have to wait for it. Yeah. You know, my favorite lunch was on the menu. I spoke to a friend. 
look out for these things, note them. You know, you can train your brain to kind of seek out happiness. And I, also, yeah, I've always thought there are happy people and unhappy people. There, well, um, there are. And, and there one are. of the good things to do is to... research that I always quote, because sort of that looks at lottery winners and it looks at people that have lost uh, a limb and they find that immediately, obviously, lottery winners are over the moon. Yeah. And, that have gone through accidents feel terrible. Within six months' time, they both reached the baseline level of happiness or unhappiness that they were. So the lottery readers are going, well, my life's still a bit awful. Yeah. People now are hounding me for money. And the people that have had this accident have said, you know what, I've found a new lease of life because now I'm kind of, you know, being able to take up this sport that I never thought I'd do or I'm like a campaigning. So, you know, that kind of, you know, the idea that we're, we're, we can't choose to be happy. I understand there's biochemistry involved. There's a lot there. But you can't choose to shift it by looking at what you attend to. So, so take some responsibility for how, you know, you're curating, you know, the stuff that comes into your consciousness. What are you reading? Who are you hanging out with? What are you focusing on? And that will give you a boost, whatever age you are, no doubt. Absolutely right. Dr. Linda Papadopoulos, brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. If you win the lottery, just hack off one of your limbs and then you'll see how lucky you feel. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far enough. <laughs> Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. No milk today, my love has gone away. The bottle stands forlorn, a symbol of the dawn. No milk today, it seems a common sight. But people passing by don't know the reason why. How could they know? Oh three four 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 nine nine one thousand is the number to call us on. Coming up in the next hour, we're going to talk about violent video games because a report has just come out, and I'm not entirely surprised that it's just come out and said this, that actually violent video games don't make kids any more violent than they were before. Uh, however, what I would say uh, is it might not make them violent, but it certainly can't be all that good for them if they're spending hours and hours and hours every single day playing them. But we'll have that debate coming up in the next hour. Coming up shortly, we're going to talk about milk uh, and why so many pints of milk, millions of pints of milk, it has to be said, uh, are uh, on the missing list and do not get drunk and get th- thrown away because the sell-by date uh, passes and people decide that it's not safe to drink it. Absolute and utter rubbish. First, though, let's talk to Vicky, uh, who's called in from Brighton. Hello, Vicky. Hello, good morning. Good morning. Mike. Welcome to the show. What would um, you like to say? Well, I was so interested to hear that conversation you were having with the council employee, etc., yeah. about the bin collection and so on. Yeah. You know, the big elephant in the room, and this is never given much publicity, is that um, it's been estimated now, and this is a report going back to 2015 that I re-looked again, that 34 pence of every pound that all of us pay in council tax is required for council tax employee pensions. Mm. And it's simply the fact that when the private sector, absolutely across the board, really ditched what's called defined pensions, which means, you know, because they couldn't afford them. That was that was the point. And people in the private sector have had to pay more if they've got private pensions and so on and so forth. But, of course, Gordon Brown never bit the bullet at the time. This is going back years. And so, basically, um, you know, this is a lot of money. Mm. And I just wonder whether people realise it. I, I totally accept that there are people working for the council who are on low salaries, you know, and their pension would reflect that. But all I know is a lot of people working for the pension uh, for the uh, council are on very, very, very good salaries. Yes. Well, you see, the and thing about this, will... and, and you'll know this, Vicky, as well, is that the original idea yeah. of working in the public sector was that you would not be paid an awful lot of money, but you would get very good exactly. benefits and you would get good holidays, exactly. very good sick pay and decent pensions. However, now exactly. they've got the best of all worlds, haven't they? Completely, completely. But as I say, it's always like... 
you know, they talk about their funding's been reduced by and all the rest of it, mm. but nobody ever flags this up. Yeah. You know, I wonder how many people listening to know that 34 pence of every pound they pay to the council is required for pensions. Yes. Well, I must admit, and you may you may not be surprised to know this, Vicky, but I've banged that particular drum for quite a few years. I may not have done it particularly recently, but but I discovered this many years ago, and I've been repeating yeah. it ad nauseam to anyone that wants to listen. So I'm very glad that you're a fellow traveller on this, because it's true. They spend more money well, on pensions and wages than they do on anything else. Absolutely. Absolutely. So... You know, and it just makes me, it really just makes me so cross when every other excuse is used for council finances, but everybody shuts up about this because so many of them are doing very nicely, thank you, when it comes to retiring. Yeah. I mean, blimey, I've worked from the age of 16, University of Life and all that, yeah. and, um, you know, and the amount of money and national insurance and all the rest of it that I paid and scrimped and saved to get a pension fund together, you know, and the private, uh, the public sector, as you say, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was seen as low pay but good benefits mm. and pension and everything. But now the kind of salaries that people are earning working for the council at what I would call mid-management and above level is is just astronomical. Yeah. Absolutely astronomical. I know. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, Vicky. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Sorry, I'm, I'm just cutting you short there slightly because we're running out of time. We're coming up to very nearly midday. We've got to speak to a very important man, Professor Martin Akaraha, uh, Professor of Food and Health Policy, because he's going to tell us why it is that 80 million pints of supermarket milk are wasted every year because use-by dates are up to seven days too strict. Professor, very good morning to you. Morning. Hello. Uh, now, the first question I'm going to ask you is, do you drink milk that has gone past its sell-by date? So do I. Congratulations yeah. and welcome yeah, to the no, world I... of common sense. <laughs> but why do they do it so 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 ridiculously? I mean, I go into a supermarket sometimes and just to, 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 to be awkward and mention something else, lettuce, always lettuce, always has the same day on it that you're buying it. So when you buy it, it's already out of date. Yeah, but we, I mean, one of the problems here is there's, oh, people are overcautious and the supermarkets are overcautious because they're afraid people will come back and sue them and say, I got sick from your product. Yeah. What we've lost is an element of common sense. Right. You just need to look at products. You need to sniff it. Right. You know, whether I'd serve milk like that to, if I had people around for dinner, I'm not completely sure. You know, I would take the risk myself. But Yeah. Um, well, we've yeah, all we had that. We've all had that embarrassing moment where you pour the milk into the tea in front of the person you're giving it to, yeah, and curdle. it all starts to curdle, and you or go, "Ah, out of the bottle." <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing. But I mean, really, have we lost all sense of of, of, of proportion in this country? Well, we've lost some sense, but it's also that if you think about the cheapness of milk, yeah. you know, that we know that farmers aren't getting paid. Farmers are getting paid below the gate price, yeah. so they're actually subsidized. So, and milk is one of the things that's a loss leader when mm. they go into the supermarket. Yeah. The supermarkets deliberately keep milk low so that you buy it and you think, oh, I'll just buy some because I've had that. And they do sell it now in ever-increasing kind of containers, don't they? I mean, I don't yeah. really feel the need, even if I'm buying milk for the family fridge with two kids and their mother, I don't feel the need to have a sort of four-pint container of milk in the fridge. Well, with kids, maybe you do. I mean, I can see the point, you know, I just had my grandkids over for the weekend and we were running out of milk suddenly where where the two of us don't normally run out of Mm. milk, but the kids were drinking it. You know, we were like, oh my gosh, we need to go and get another, you know, litre of milk. I I do see why better milk than some other, you know, soft drinks or something. Um, But it's also, we've lost the ability to think about what we might do with that milk. Mm. You know, even if you're a bit dubious, People don't make their own bread anymore. People don't turn it into other things. 
people just chuck it down the drain. Yeah. That's the problem. And of course, it's so cheap. There's no incentive to keep it and use it in other ways. You just chuck it down the drain. But we're talking here apparently about 20 billion quid's worth of wasted food. That's an incredible amount of money. Yeah, I mean, the average family in the UK, on average, wastes, i.e. in the front door, out the back door, £600 a year. Wow. That's mad, isn't it? It's mad, you know. I mean, could we not? Maybe maybe we're attacking it in the wrong way because perhaps instead of having the conversation you and I are having about it's ridiculous, show more common sense, we should maybe be trying to tell people that they're wasting their own money because maybe that would have more resonance with them. I think so. I mean, I think it might. Saying, actually, do you realise? And also providing them with options. You know, what do you do with milk that's gone slightly off Mm. while you can make bread with it? You can do other things with it. I mean, people have a lot. There is a loss of skills, I think, generally among the population. And a loss of confidence in food. Do you know what I would do? I've I've come up with a brilliant idea, and I'd like you to, to, to tell me what you think. Have somebody standing at the end of the supermarket, right? And as you're walking out the door with your trolley, they make you give them something back. One thing out of what you bought. No, that's very interesting. That would be one way of doing it. I think think that could work. And then you could give that to a food bank at the same time or something. Yeah, well, you could. Ask, I mean, you could ask them, "What do you need? What are you buying that you really aren't haven't got any plans right. for in in your basket?" And yeah. say, "Why don't you put that back and or donate it yeah. somewhere else?" And that if they've be... got like two two liter uh, containers of milk, make make them give one of them back. Yeah, well, that might be. You know, that's what home economists used to do. Yeah, I mean, maybe we just need to have a home economist <laughs> in each supermarket. Yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, incredibly, in my lifetime, and I suspect you're not much older than me, in my lifetime, the whole supermarket thing has gone kind of nuclear. You know, I mean, I remember going into the first supermarket I went to with my mother uh, back in the 60s, which was on Finchley Road. I think it was a Sainsbury's. And it was about roughly the size of what we now would call one of those metro stores, you know? Yeah. And that was as big as it needed to be. Now, it's ridiculous. Well, that's why the hard discounters, Aldi and Little, have filled a slot in the market. Yeah. People have got overwhelmed with the big supermarkets, right. and they're looking for less choice, So, mm. particularly during the recession when we all noticed food prices going up. Yeah. We started re-evaluating our shopping. And actually, the big supermarkets are themselves moving this way because mm. people have moved from monthly shops to weekly shops. Yeah, yeah because um, if you only do a monthly shop, you, you tend to buy too much stuff, don't you? Yeah, yeah, because you, you don't know what you're going to be doing at the end, so you put stuff in your basket and yeah. I might use that. I mean, when food prices went up between 2007 and 2012, mm. we, we were even if you could afford it, you were aware of the increase in food prices. Right. Um, and people have changed their shopping habits. So, I mean, but still it's £600 in the front door, out the back door. That's, yeah. an, you know, that's a holiday. It is. The other, I mean, the other way you could do it is, is by giving people a muffin every time they walk into a supermarket, right? Because <laughs> Give you them a napple. Give them something healthy. What's wrong with a muffin? It could be a blueberry muffin. Occasionally, but as long as they've got coffee with it, I don't know. No, listen, you need to fill them up because if they're shopping hungry, they're buying loads of food they don't need. True. So, true. so muffin, muffin on the way in, take something off them on the way out. There you go. Well, yeah. Join my crusade. <laughs> Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.